Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 150, Learning the Power Underway of Jesus. And yes, on Unbinding the Bible, this is episode 150, which I think under normal circumstances would be a bit of a milestone, except that with all of the bonus episodes and the Throwback Thursdays, and the the by-the-book author interviews. This is actually episode 183, and so I don't really have anything special planned for episode 150. Although what I do intend to do on the podcast today, I've really been wrestling internally with quite a few thoughts, things about church life, things about ministry, things about this power under versus power over mentality and how the church should posture itself, which is a word I use a lot, how we should posture ourselves toward those who don't quite conform to the way we think people should in terms of sinful actions or being in a process that is different from what we are used to or familiar with. And I recently um, went it through the Gospels in chapter 19 of Luke, and we looked at the story of Zacchaeus. And just looking at that narrative again and realizing the powerful transformation that took place in Zacchaeus's life as a result of being embraced by Jesus, I realized that I find a lot of comfort there. And I realized that that actually challenges the way many people in the church think about how transformation happens. And I got into several conversations with different Christians surrounding the preparation of preaching that message and found that several people don't see the um, encounter that Jesus had with Zacchaeus in the same ways that I do. In fact, they imagine that there must have already been some workings going on in Zacchaeus's life prior to Jesus meeting him. And that gives a better explanation of what takes place afterwards. Um, I tend to read that narrative and imagine that, yeah, maybe Zacchaeus was looking because he was intrigued by this guy, Jesus. But what Jesus actually does in embracing him and welcoming him is quite literally in the passage what really makes the religious people angry. And today in our churches and the way that political discussions are made front and center in churches and the way partisan divides seem to be stronger than our kingdom of God. Um, Unities in this world have made me come to the realization that many Christians don't really think about those outside the church in the same way I think Jesus did as it related to being outside of the religious community. And so I want us to learn his power underway. And one of the ways I want to do that is to just read for you a little bit of what I've been writing down as I've been wrestling through this time of confusion, I'm really trying to put thoughts and words and ideas down to explain the angst that I feel in the church, that I imagine those outside the church also feel. And I don't know if this will be helpful for you or not, but it's all that I came up with for this week. And I do think it fits our pattern of grinding down our golden calf. I think in order to come face to face, with the ways that we have just baptized power over relationships and the way we talk to people who we have identified as sinful, who don't conform. I want us to look a little bit about the way that works within the church 
And I want to talk a little bit about the way I think Jesus challenges that and challenges us. And so the form this is going to take today is me simply reading from my journal. Um, I sat down on Friday morning of this past week. I couldn't do anything else but just type. And these thoughts aren't necessarily formed. They're not articulate. Um, It's kind of just a big blah down on paper. But as I think through, how did Jesus interact with the world? And how does he call his church as his body on earth to interact with the world? I do think they're supposed to be similar. And I want to make sure that we are grasping the right idea behind who Jesus was and the way he went about his business so that we might rightly follow him in the way we go about kingdom work now. So I know that was a bit of a longer introduction, but I kind of gave the framework for what I'm hoping to do in this episode. And so if you are uh, strapped in and ready to go, I'm going to take the next 20 or 30 minutes and listen to some thoughts that I have from a journal that I hope will be an encouragement and a challenge and an exhortation for us to reshape our lives as a community around the person of Jesus. As I shared in the introduction, I do plan just to read for you a journal entry from my journal from this past Friday, November 4th. Um, In my mind, I intend just to read straight through what I wrote, but since these are my words, if something new comes to mind, which most likely will happen, I will interject it. And I may tell you I'm interjecting it, or I may just interject it and go right on. But either way, I wanted to share with you sort of these jumbled thoughts and see if we can make some sense of them. So here we go. What do we think it means that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners? For the religious leaders, at least, this was offensive. But here's what I'm wondering. Why was it offensive? From my perspective, I think religious people viewed Jesus's actions as offensive for at least several reasons. One, sinners were not to be welcomed by righteous people. Two, Jesus must not therefore have taken the law very seriously. Or three, Jesus was soft on sin, or so I've heard some people say, or accuse Christians of being. Or four, Jesus was muddying the waters between the righteous and the wicked by not making clear distinctions between who was righteous and who was not. Now, I am sure there are other reasons, um, and perhaps some of the ones I suggested aren't even on anybody's list. I'm not really sure, but the bottom line is this. What was it really like for Jesus to make enemies with a religious crowd by his sloppy and unconventional treatment of sinners? Having grown up very conservatively, I know what I used to think about this. Well, Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but he made sure to tell them about their sin and they turned from it relatively quickly as a result. Now, that sounds nice and it makes us feel better about our general hesitancy to actually embrace sinful people. But I have seen the way that even religious people respond, for example, when someone gives their testimony um, in a church service, maybe they're being welcomed into the church and they publicly give their testimony about how their once sinful lifestyle gave way to a life of righteousness. And everyone in the church rejoices and they praise Jesus and they welcome the former sinner into their midst. 
Of course they do, because he or she is not a sinner anymore. That person has repented. They've changed their ways. They've seen the light. Now, of course, I don't mean that anybody in the church imagines that they're no longer a sinner. But my point is, as it relates to the testimony, they see that person. Oh, that person used to struggle with drug addiction. Oh, that person used to struggle with sleeping around. Oh, that person used to struggle with their identity, but now they found it in Jesus. Yay. And embracing that person is all the easier because we never had to walk through the messiness of their process of going from sinner to righteous. We hear the testimonies of those whose lives were transformed, and we rejoice with them as we welcome them into our church. I've been a part of those times, and they're really quite beautiful. But when those stories are shared, we need to recognize something very important. We were not a part of their life when it was messy, when things were unclear, when they were in counseling, when they didn't know what they believed, when they were questioning everything, when they had two good days and then one really bad day, or 20 bad days in a row, or when they got upset at someone in church for no apparent reason and caused a big scene over something that appeared trivial. You fill in the blanks. You've got examples. You know people. You are those people. We weren't there for any of that. Rather, the person sharing their testimony had worked through all of it before they came to us. And now, by welcoming them into our midst, we simply reap the benefits of someone who has wrestled with themselves and with Jesus and come out on the other side. But how do we treat people who are not yet on the other side? How do we treat people who don't yet have their lives figured out? How do we treat people who might even be at the beginning stages of disillusionment or confusion or who really want to know what the truth is and their process makes others in the church uncomfortable? Do we ask them to leave? Do we sideline them? Do we sit them down and make sure they know that their actions or beliefs aren't welcome here? I want us all to take a deep breath and realize something that often goes unnoticed. People in process make us uncomfortable. We've created a sort of Christianity that likes things in black and white terms. You are either an unbeliever or you're a believer. You're either growing or you're backsliding. You're either a server and a giver in the church, or you're a taker. You're either a leader or you're a follower. And then we tend to read all of Jesus's encounters with people in the gospels as if there are only these two kinds of people in the world, those who've met Jesus and those who haven't. And we assume that every problem or issue a person had before they met Jesus is automatically dealt with once and for all the moment they meet him. There was a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. She touches Jesus' garment and her bleeding stops. There was a man who was born blind. Jesus touches him and now he can see. There was a crippled man carried on a mat by his four friends. Jesus speaks to him and now he can walk. Simple, right? Black and white. Simple, straightforward, clear. But what we often forget are the lives of Jesus' actual disciples. Disciples who don't seem quite to know what to do with Jesus or with other people. James and John want to count down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. Jesus has to rebuke them. 
Peter rebukes Jesus when Jesus talks about his suffering and death. Jesus, in in turn, rebukes Peter. Jesus invites his disciples to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They fall asleep, not once, but three times. Jesus asks his disciples to feed a hungry crowd, and they complain that not even three months' wages would be enough to buy enough food for all of the people to eat. Now, the disciples, by definition, are following Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And as you and I read the gospel narratives, we ought to strive to see ourselves as Jesus' disciples too. But what the gospel writers do time and again is point out how clueless the disciples of Jesus actually are, how rash their decision-making is at times, how out of touch with compassion they are, how quick they are to judge the motives of others, or how naturally it comes to them to see themselves as better than others because they are following Jesus so faithfully and those around them aren't. But if we're not careful, we can bypass everything the Gospels teach us about what following Jesus might actually look like in the real world and choose instead to hold to our narrative that people are either in or they're out, They're either faithful or they're unfaithful. They're either righteous or they're sinful. But what we have to do instead is to ask, how is it that the unfaithful start moving toward faithfulness? How is it that those who are on the outside start moving toward the inside? How do the sinful move toward becoming righteous? As I read the Gospels, it appears that people move along this spectrum by being around Jesus. And it appears to me that what Jesus wants most from his church is that we would continue that work as his body by encouraging those moving along that spectrum to be around us. But we need to look at others the same way Jesus does and then recognize that his way of looking at others was not all that popular. In fact, as we've seen, it was downright offensive Offensive by those who had dedicated their lives to knowing the scriptures and living by them. I want you to understand that as we think through our world and our reality in Jesus's world and in Jesus's reality, the people who were most offended by what he was doing were those who had dedicated their lives to knowing the scriptures and living by them. It was from those people that Jesus was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was not accused of being a friend of former tax collectors and sinners. He was accused of being a friend of current tax collectors and sinners. And those accusing him of this saw him as disregarding God's standards, as being soft on sin and not really loving the sinner at all, Because in the minds of most of the religious people I know, who I only imagine are repeating a refrain that has been as old as the Pharisees themselves, quote, the most loving thing to do is to tell that person the truth, end quote. But when one of the first encounters you have with a person involves you sharing your potentially uninvited perspective on their lifestyle, then you, perhaps unwittingly, give the impression that a relationship with you is going to require a change in their lifestyle. But we all know exactly how that would feel if things were reversed. Entering into a relationship with someone where one of the first things discussed is how they disapprove of something about you would not make for a very enjoyable relationship. 
You don't have to read far or look far into the world of psychology to recognize that disapproval is not high on the list of characteristics that make up good friendships. And yet, someone's determination to, quote-unquote, stand for truth is built just on this premise. How far do you honestly think a relationship like that will go? Now, it's right here where we have what I've seen time and again, a false dichotomy between loving God and loving neighbor. Loving God, or standing for truth, is, again, unwittingly perhaps, pitted against loving neighbor, or embracing a person as they are for who they are. Please know that I am not suggesting that you accept whatever another person says about themselves or whatever actions they are currently participating in. Rather, it is recognizing that we're being asked by Jesus, not other people, to walk a very fine line, just like Jesus did, to learn to embrace the person and let them know that you care about them as a person, and only secondarily sharing with them how you see God's best for their life, taking them in a different direction than they are currently going. Nothing about this is easy. I get that. And God knows I've failed at this too many times to count. But I'm rubbing up against the actual life of Jesus. And I'm finding it oddly ironic that what he was most accused of was being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, or of breaking the Sabbath, or of questioning the accepted practices of the righteous people to the point that he said some of the most believed to be righteous were in reality some of the worst kinds of people. If you need any further example of that, go read Matthew 23. It is shocking and stunning and hits awfully close to home. And this has always bothered me. It's bothered me because it's as if we've all forgotten 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Externally, We see what we see, or more accurately, we see what a particular person wants us to see. Internally, though, we do not see what's there. We do not see another person's internal striving for goodness, for example, or their maneuvering for control, or their fear of being seen as not good enough, or their pride, or maybe their shame, or what they have had to overcome to be where they are or the hurts they are carrying which are driving their current behavior, or the anger that's gripped them, or the challenges they've faced throughout their lives, or the expectations that are plaguing every decision they make. Internally, we don't know or see any of that, but God does. And this is why it is futile for us to simply accept everyone who outwardly anyway conforms to what we have come to believe we should expect to see in the lives of righteous people or church-going people or regular everyday Joes whose lives don't need to be interfered with by other members of the church. For starters, we need to understand that most of what we understand as righteous is socially constructed anyway and more often than not, stems from our own particular cultural upbringing and what our community has suggested are the true standards of right and wrong, many of which, by the way, aren't biblical in any true sense of that word. What we have to understand is that my quote-unquote righteousness or my standing for the truth cannot and must not be based on whether or not any sinners in my midst respond to my stance. Rather, my righteousness needs to be based on how willing I am 
to love another person, regardless of what they do or how they live. Honestly, we're faced with two different issues when asked to love other people. How deserving those people are of our love and how willing we are to extend that love to them. We are only given permission to concern ourselves with the second issue, how willing we are to extend our love to another person. It's never been our job to determine if they deserve it or to withhold our love in order to make certain that they know what the truth is or to stand for truth by distancing ourselves from those who don't conform. None of those things are our job. Our job is to love other people, period. And I am afraid that taking a stand for truth is sometimes, not maliciously, I don't believe, but real all the same, sometimes used as a reason not to truly love another person. And this frightens me. It frightens me because righteousness all throughout the Bible is defined explicitly as love for God and love for neighbor. But what mankind has done over the years is to see these two commands as separate or as distinct. One is a little bit more important than the other. And the important one for many conservative Christians who I spend most of my time with are the idea that you can love God and then loving another person is something that is beneath that command. Or in other words, that it is possible to love God, but not to love one another. Or the rejection or the, uh, the counterpoint I often get is that if you love one another too much, i.e. you are too soft on sin or you don't oppose sin in another person strongly enough, then you are no longer loving God. But what got Jesus into so much trouble is that he connected these two commands. He made them so inseparable that no one knew what to do with him. And so they had him killed. Because in their minds, to welcome sinners meant to disregard God's standards. Jesus, on the other hand, lived out righteousness in that his willingness to love people who didn't deserve it was precisely how he expressed his love for God. Jesus didn't set God's standards aside in order to welcome sinners. And he didn't only welcome sinners once they rejected their sinfulness and started living by God's standards. We need to understand this. Let me read that again. Jesus didn't set God's standards aside in order to welcome sinners. And he didn't only welcome sinners once they rejected their sinfulness and started living by God's standards. I really do feel like the church imagines one of these two things has to be true. And I think it doesn't. No, Jesus stood right in the middle of two opposing forces, God's standards and man's waywardness. And he asked one very simple question. What would it look like to bring these two things into harmony? And what is the best way to go about doing that? In other words, how do we get a wayward sinner to turn from their sin and begin seeking after the Lord? That's the question Jesus asked. And that's the question he answered with his life. The way he answered it was by loving them, not judging them, not shaming them, not accusing them, loving them. And his love His grace was the power that transformed them from wayward to follower, from lost to found, from ashamed to joyful. 
But notice that as I say that, I'm speaking about it as if it's already happened. But many, many times Jesus is inviting his church to walk with people, to be with people in their process, in whatever journey and state of being in relationship with him they currently find themselves. So it's nice from us to look at this spectrum. Well, they were wayward and now they're a follower. They were lost and now they're found. They used to live in shame and now they live a joy-filled life. But we don't understand that small little dash between those two words. We need to understand what it might feel like to be with another person in that process, to be a community that surrounds that person. In fact, what we oftentimes miss as being individualists in the West is that Jesus wasn't primarily focused on individuals following him. He was gathering a community around him. In fact, for a little bit of biblical theology, do you ever wonder why or have you ever asked why Jesus chose 12 disciples to follow him? He was reenacting the 12 tribes of Israel, surrounding himself with a new community, the church embodied and led by the disciples, who would reenact what God's intentions originally were for his holy nation, Israel. And that holy nation now, today, is not America. It's the church, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a community who has been gathered around the person of Jesus. That's what he did in the, in the first century, and it wasn't only 12. Those were the ones he called explicitly, but there were other occasions where he had 70 followers and he sent them out two by two to witness and to cast out demons and to cure the, the you know, heal lepers and to cure the sick. He had hundreds of people who would follow him around in the crowd. Some of them stayed crowds. Some of them became more intimate followers of him. But he gathered a community around him. And as a community, everyone was learning. Some of the times James and John speak up and they want, they want Jesus to give them the, the, the greatest seat in the kingdom and the other disciples get upset. So part of the lesson for Jesus is to teach his two disciples who were jostling for position why that's not the correct response. And part of the rest of his discipleship for the other 10 was, what do you do with your indignant attitudes now toward James and John for the fact that they suggested such an audacious thing? For Jesus to gather around himself, both people who are rich and poor, the word of the kingdom to the rich is going to have to be to begin to detach himself or herself from some of the material possessions that very well may have come to define their life and their identity. But the word of the kingdom to a person who is poor may in fact have a lot less to do with detaching them from things that they have built their identity around for the simple fact that some poor people don't have anything with which to build an identity around in the material world and to begin to teach them that trusting him with their, with their deepest needs and, and wants is something in fact that they might learn to find hope and freedom and um, generosity from those in their midst who are wealthier than they are. So I think that's important. And so we are a community. Jesus gathers a community around him. And as a community, everybody is learning what it means to be conformed to this person of Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a community. And that's what we are. 
We are a community with differing ideas, convictions, perspectives, and ideals, and we are learning together, all of us. This community is what God has created to bring people along. And how many people did Jesus interact with, do you think, didn't offend his sensibilities regarding what was right and what was wrong? Do you think anyone that Jesus interacted with was doing everything exactly right? I doubt it. So the question is for the church, how did Jesus treat those kinds of people? Because I find it oddly ironic and sad at the same time that many Christians will hold out this reality that they have to stand for truth and that their faithfulness in the presence of people who are living lifestyles that they don't necessarily agree with, those people have to know because we as Christians have to be faithful by, by telling them that what they're doing is wrong, by somehow not necessarily excluding them or saying that we won't exclude them, but we don't really want to let them be a part of our community. And what it's interesting to me is that you, we have to start by asking ourselves, how did Jesus deal with this? Jesus came from the right hand of the Father, where all manner of righteousness, holiness, purity, goodness, and beauty reside. He steps into a messed up, twisted, broken, dysfunctional, sin-ridden world where the people that he interacts with, every single one of them, has been living in that dysfunction and twisted, sin-ridden world their entire lives. So the odds that any of them are in a position to faithfully respond to the message of Jesus is absurd. None of them were there. So what does Jesus do? I mean, I can imagine the kinds of sermons Jesus could have preached. You all are here. You all think you're close to God, but you can't believe how sick and twisted and far off from him you are. And I've listened to pastors who must read Jesus in the Gospels and think that he's saying stuff like that because that's kind of how they preach. But the more I'm getting to know Jesus and the more I actually have evaluated in my own life, how is it that I've come to trust people in my life? Who are those that I feel safe sharing some of my uh, the kinds of things that I've kept secret for so long that have actually enslaved me to commit and continue to commit the same kinds of sins and brokenness and selfishness that have have you know been present in my life for years. How is it that I've come to understand that and accept it? It's when I find people who are willing to meet me where I am in the process, show compassion, show understanding, and realize that at the end of the day, I am an autonomous person with the image of God in me to such an extent that I am free to choose whether I'm going to follow or whether I'm not. And I think one of the biggest things the church can learn today is how to treat those who are not yet part of the church and how to treat those who are, that we are free to make decisions. We are free to stand before Jesus and answer for the reasons why we came to the conclusions we did, why we held the convictions that we held. And much of the New Testament is written, at least several passages I can think of, where Paul has to share with people how they work out their convictions in their own lives, but how they get along or choose to maintain fellowship with people who do not share their convictions. 
Because for us, we think that our convictions, because we've arrived at them due to experience, personality, and biblical truth, many of us tend to think that it was the biblical truth and the clear teaching of the Bible that leads to our personal conviction. And therefore, anybody who doesn't hold to our conviction since we arrived at it via biblical truth must then not also hold to the same biblical truth. And I think what we need is an honest assessment of our convictions and of the things that we are so certain are true in this world that we open ourselves up to realizing maybe there are other ways of approaching this. Maybe my conclusion isn't the only one that matters. Maybe what I think about this one specific issue is entirely irrelevant. Maybe how I choose to love and care for and listen to and have compassion on someone who actually has a very different view of reality than me, says a whole lot more about my love for Jesus and my willingness to express that love toward a person with whom I strongly disagree. That is the transformation that Jesus is after. He's not primarily concerned that the church will be a place who just speaks the truth and backs off in its ability to actually love other people or be transformed in how how much better we can learn to love. I think that's what the church needs. That's what I need because I have justified a lot of things under I don't have to love that person because what that person is doing is wrong. That doesn't matter. And I think looking at Jesus and assessing the way he dealt with people who, I, like I said, were clearly doing what was wrong, the bigger question on the table is, how do we bring these two opposites together? God's standards for righteousness and mankind's waywardness. Do we just drop a big hammer and threaten everybody who is not going to comply? Well, I've seen and heard of plenty of people who think that's God's approach. But when I read the Gospels, that's not how I see Jesus interacting. I see Jesus bringing a hammer down on the kinds of people who found it to be their job to bring the hammer down on others. But for those who had the hammer brought on them, who were excluded, who found in their lives directions that they didn't really want to be, Jesus had mercy and compassion. He stepped in the mess that was people's lives and he brought them through the mess. He didn't threaten them. He didn't coerce them. He didn't manipulate them. He invited them. He asked them to come and follow him. And now as his body, the church, the people who are in community, who've been called by Jesus to form this new community, to be this holy nation on earth, to be a light to the rest of the nations, we, first of all, need to be the kind of place that people who are in process or who are attempting to navigate this life know that in us, they have a support system. They have people who genuinely care about them, who don't make it our first line of business to point out all of the things about this person that we believe are wrong that they need to know about. For the simple fact that none of us grow or desire to be closer to Jesus because all he ever does is spend his time telling us what's wrong with us. Most of us already know that. We don't need another person reinforcing it. 
What we need is the freedom to be embraced, welcomed, and loved by someone or by a group of people that no matter what we do with our lives, we know we will not lose that love. That's the only way that love has the transforming power that it does. And when you meet someone like that, when you meet Jesus who is like that, or when you meet somebody from his church, or when you meet an entire community of people in his church who are like that, they are the kinds of people that you want to keep being around. And they are the kinds of people who will take accusations of You just spend all your time with sinful people. Don't you know that God has higher standards for life than that? And welcome because you're in good company. You're with somebody like Jesus who received those kinds of accusations, those kinds of criticisms, and was actually put to death because the people around him could not reconcile how he could supposedly disregard God's standards to such an extent that he would be known as a friend of current tax collectors and sinners. May we as a church be a people who will start getting accused of being a friend to all the wrong kinds of people. And may we find in our churches that same kind of welcome and embrace for us to the point where we could be free to express some of the deepest struggles that we have And that the church could be a place not where we put on another mask and smile and look pretty and say all the right things in all the right ways and outwardly appear righteous before others. But may the church be the kind of place where we can open ourselves up to the dysfunction and the brokenness and the ugliness that may in fact be residing internally and through a community of Jesus followers who welcome us, who love us, who accept us, and who embrace us, we can begin to unwind the twisted thorns of sinful ways and and, uh, wrongful thinking that have entrapped us, and we might actually begin to find the freedom that Jesus promised the world. That's what I think it means to pursue the power under way of Jesus. But it's something we have to learn. It doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come easily, but it's worth giving up everything for because in that we will find true life. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.